So, like, what is the cold open, though? We've been through this a bunch of times, Chloe. Yeah, but, like, see, I wasn't listening, is the <sighs> thing. Like, Jesus Christ, man. I was thinking about what boba tea I wanted to get, Katie. I thought you'd be happy about that. <laughs> like, as exciting as you and Katie's next bubble tea date is, Chloe. Uh, it's boba tea, and yes, it is extremely exciting, Sarah. Me and Chloe finally have something to bond over, so... Chloe are each other's emergency contacts, Katie. Fair shot. Flannery, I told you that in confidence. <laughs> Why would you be my emergency contact when you're like beyond shit in your crisis? I know, like remember that time I bare my face with my corner wand and I tried to put my whole head under the top? <laughs> the shower was right there, man. Like, like should we... Should we just say the name of the book and just get started? I don't know how we're going to get back from this. Like, Clee, I am going to genuinely get a t-shirt for you that has like voice of reason just like printed on it or something oh like i feel so seen (laughs) and not before time my friend but um yeah this week we're going to be talking about the the next in our series of people what we love loads um this week's book is susan lanigan's white feathers sorry girls that was yeah, that was a lot. Like, are you okay, man? <laughs> yes, I'm fine, Katie. I'm Gwen Chana, as we say in Korean, all right? Um, but yeah, yeah, Su- Susan um, has been, yeah, such a supporter of the show, like right from the beginning. And yeah, we've been meaning to talk about her 2016 debut for ages. Here, Stacia, did you like write that down? What? No, like you just, you sounded like you were doing like a video for like... I don't know, Politico or something. Like, Politico don't have videos, man. Or book reviews, for that matter. I just don't understand why you won't let me in, Kate. <laughs> like, I promise we are going to talk about this book. Like, genuinely, it is it is going to happen. So, like, if you do want to hear about World War One feminism, you know, whether a teacher-student relationship is ever not a little bit weird, and, you know, whether we can possibly make a fictional character our real-life best friend, um, stick around, because I swear that's what we're going to talk about on this week's Chicklet for Life. But like, male voices don't have a monopoly on merit, man. Yeah, and alliteration means it's real. But a pink cover doesn't make a book vapid. When BTS dear boy with love. <laughs> yes, Chloe, it's that and not feminism. That's the reason why we're chiclet for life. No, but like seriously, Sarah, did you write that down? Like it's okay, you can tell us. No, I didn't write it down, Chloe. But like, how'd you think of it then? No, seriously, are you okay, Chloe? Like, yeah, I said I was. Yeah, you're just, you're kind of coming in hot today. And I'm not. Like, it's, n- it's not that big a deal. Like, sometimes, like, a question can, like, seem super important. What question? What are you talking about? Like, Chloe, you're legitimately jumping down my throat asking how I remembered when Susan's book came out and, like, put it in a sentence all on my own. Like, it's not that big a deal. No, like... No, like, I just wouldn't be able to do that as all. Well. You know, like, I just wanted to know, like, how you were, like, able to remember it. Like, like, what do you mean how she was able to remember it? Well, like, I want to remember stuff and, like, I never can. Like, stuff gets mixed up in my head and, like... Yeah, I can't remember it. Chloe, man, like, it's fine. Like, people learn in different ways. Like, this is not a big deal. Like, oh my God, what is it that you guys know that we don't know? This is maddening. Oh, fine, 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 fine. I 
was asking Katie if she was using that Korean language app that I was using and like she started after me and like she's already passed the test at the end of the first module and I'm only getting like half the questions right. But it is genuinely not that big a deal. How's right? it not going to be a big deal when we go to Korea after COVID Katie and you're able to talk to JK Opa and to fan me and I can't. Like, yeah, okay, fine. I'm a Lilzar fangirl. Like, whatever. Like, no, right? of course like, not. Genuinely, Chloe, like, I know exactly what you mean. Like, I remember going to see Paramore a few years ago. Oh, super sexy Hayley Williams. Ah, my first and only love, Sarah. Orange-haired siren of emo pop writiness. Stop, I'll get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, no, I remember, yeah, I remember being, like, genuinely upset when I got there that, like, there were however many thousand other ticket holders that had also shown up. Like, where was the show? Oh, it was in the tree arena, Serta. <laughs> so, like, 10,000 other people. Yeah, easily. Okay, like, like I'm confused. Like, what, what did you think was going to happen? Like, like, I don't know how I thought it was going to happen, but I had this, like, super ridiculous, like, thought, fantasy, wish, obsession, whatever you want to call it, that like, not that it would just be me and the band, like that that would be ridiculous, but like that maybe it would be like me, the band and like 50 to 200 other people that like Hayley could notice me among, you know, because, you know, we're, we're supposed to be together, you know. Okay, so like, setting aside the whole weird stalker aspect of that. Obviously, I mean, time constraints, clearly. Um, but like, like, like the show was sold out, right? And that, that you were you were aware of that. Like, Katie, at no point was my closeted, horny, preteen brain thinking thoughts in any way near as logical as that. Like, sometimes, sometimes you think it's going to be just you and the band. And, you know, if it's going to be just you and the band and the band is Korean, like, you're going to need to be able to speak the language. I, I understand the, the feeling of urgency, Chloe. Thank you, Kleena. That's all I was after. <laughs> okay, but like, you do, you do understand that the point of my story is that me and Hayley Williams are, in fact, not locked in a passionate or long distance love to end all loves right now. <laughs> I do. I do know that. And and Kleena, during this difficult time, I mean, that's why I want you to be maid of honour at me and J.K. Opa's wedding. Um, Chloe, that's, that's not... Like, like, no, but like, I think Jiminy Opa will be like, okay with being demoted to Flower Girl. Okay, like, I'm not endorsing this flight of crazy fancy, but just for the record, Jimin would absolutely slay being flat or girl. Like, oh my God, like the attitude he would bring to the whole thing. Like, I don't know you guys, like he gets embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. Like if I was picking a BTS member to be flower girl of Chloe's imaginary wedding and, and it appears I am, it, uh, yeah, it'd have to be Jin. Like, you, you know, he'd definitely go for it. Exactly. Super tuna energy. <gasps> oh my God. God, you could play Super Chino when he walks up the aisle. <laughs> <laughs> Stop messing with my vision, girls. Like, the only BTS song played will be Euphoria as J.K. Opa is airlifted to me because, girls, girls, like, I'm the cause of his Euphoria. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my god! Why? Why would you say something like that? <laughs> okay, just just a quick recap. Oh my god, that hurt! It was so bad. <laughs> just a quick recap for our non-K-pop um, listening um, audience listeners. I don't know. Uh, it doesn't matter because you're not listening anymore at this stage, man. Like, no, genuinely, we have significant drop off um, after like the first five minutes of the show, and I'm convinced it's the fangirling. <laughs> That causes it But yes We don't care um, Just so that we're clear BTS Wildly successful Korean band If you don't know them You're gonna have to Because your life Will be just better So just hit up YouTube For, for, for us Do it for us And search for BTS Spring Day um, Then BTS Idol Those are about Three minutes each It's fine um, And then I'm gonna need you To search for Run R-U-N BTS Episode 33 33 <gasps> Oh my god Is that the photo zone jumping game thing on youngest is that the always one? a classic oh <laughs> no genuinely like possibly the best thing that has been on television maybe ever well i mean aside from super tuna which you know is a one minute song that jin the eldest member and comedic genius you know wrote and recorded which is entirely about tuna chloe what Chloe, what? Uh, what? Dude, like we can legitimately hear you watching Run BTS right now. Turn it off. No, like I just want to see Jiminy Opa's hoodie string like almost go up his nose. Like it's just this quality programming, girl. That is a good ten minutes in, and you know it is. Turn it off, and I'll FaceTime you later so that we can watch the episode together and shriek laugh when Taeyong almost gets sick from, you know, laughing so hard. Oh, you mean? Of course I mean Can I go as well? Like dude we're clearly Like 100% doing this As a team Chloe look Why are you still watching this? fine fine Katie I won't get to see JK Opa pushing J-Hope Out of the rabbit photo It's off It's off It's off It's off Thank you J-Hope did get quite upset though When JK did push him (laughs) A good point You know the man is a hero you know who else is a hero? Oh my god, is this a segue right here? Your segue, Dar, does you credit Murphy. Susan, Susan is a hero. I'm taking this episode. I'm getting it back on track. It's happening. We're talking about the book. We're talking about the book right now. Sarah? Oh my god, I've never seen you like this. Look at hot hair, girls. You're calling in from home. Like, how would we know if it's hot in the downstairs bathroom where you are? Well, it is, okay, because the boiler's right beside it, Katie, if you must know. And usually I wouldn't be in here. But Kylie and Grace have taken over my room again to do some fucking TikToks. And I'd rather you didn't remind me of it, okay? <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure that's Chloe saying she's on board for talking about the book. Of course, I'm on board for talking about the book. Katie, what am I going to do? Talk about how the girls' TikToks are getting, like, way more followers than our show. Shut up, like... <laughs> Okay, um, well, for those of you that aren't aware, um, we covered another book of Susan's back in series three, and um, that was Lucia's War, um, which actually interlinks with this book a good bit. Um, some of the same characters, the same time period. And like having covered that separately, like it definitely deepened our enjoyment of White Feathers. Like, I don't think, though, yeah, now that I'm thinking of it, like, I don't think it'd matter like which order you read these in, right? Yeah, I don't think so. Like, technically, Lucia's War expands on details in White Feathers that don't really need to be gone into for Eva's story to work and vice versa for Lucia. But but yeah, it was really cool to, like, see those same characters again and kind of already have a feel for the world they were living in. Like, especially my girl Sybil. Oh, my actual God. Like, I love Sybil so goddamn much. Yeah, yeah. She'd, like, be my hero if she wasn't quite so rich. And it is talk like that, Cleana Devery, that makes you my actual favourite person. I swear to God. 
Oh, Sarah, that's really nice. <laughs> but like, but our interpersonal love inning aside, <laughs> Susan's been like this super vocal supporter of the show from like way back when we did our Jane Austen series in series two. And we're like so grateful for her finding the show and wanting to listen and tell folks about it. Like being so sound about an independent show like ours is like so, so awesome. And we're just, yeah incredibly grateful um but yes aside from our own personal love for susan her actual history is as follows um susan lanigan graduated from trinity college dublin with a degree in english and history in the late 90s then pursued a graduate diploma in it in dublin city university and a master's in writing in nui galway her first novel white feathers is a tale of passion betrayal and war and was selected as one of the final 10 in the irish writers center novel fair 2013 and published in 2014 by Brandon Books. The book won critical acclaim and was shortlisted for the UK Romantic Novel of the Year Award in 2015. Her second novel, Lucia's War, like we said, also covered in Series 3, Episode 3, was concerning, also concerning um, World War One, as well as race, music and motherhood, was published in June 2020 and has been named as the Coffee Pot Book Club Honourable Mention in the Modern Historical Book of the Year Award. So, yeah, like we said, we covered Lucy's War already back when it came out in 2020, but its predecessor, White Feathers, is also set during World War One and also follows the events of a woman's life, in this case, Eva Downey, during, yeah, this crazy, turbulent time in history. Um, we need a blurb. Uh, Kay, you want to take this one, actually? Uh, sure. Yeah, like, I feel like you haven't done one of these in ages, like... What was the last one? I genuinely can't remember, man. Yeah, same. And like, you guys, time is a flat circle at this stage. Yeah. <laughs> like okay, like, unpopular opinion, I well would match McConaughey in True Detective, yeah? Like, <laughs> okay, so Eva Downey <laughs> jumps at the chance to attend finishing school, especially as she is about to be pushed into marriage by her overbearing stepmother. At the school, she finds kinship and unexpectedly love. But when war breaks out in 1914, her family are pushing her into giving the man she loves a white feather of cowardice because he refuses to enlist. Eva's decision will have devastating consequences for her and everyone around her. Shortlisted for the Romantic Novel of the Year Award in 2015, White Feathers is a beautiful, complex and engrossing book with a strong, romantic and idealistic heart. Ivan O'Brien, The O'Brien Press. Like that barely scratches the surface right like Sarah was there like a podcast host convention like that we didn't hear about or something um sorry I think Chloe's just like saying you're like super professional this week uh I'm professional every week you guys I don't know you're like moving all of this along super slickly like like you're a guest lecturer or an MC at a freshers ball event or something yes Sarah for students union presidents Oh shit, Sarah. No, I didn't mean that. No, 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 no. Let's not allow my past crash and burn attempt at SU involvement get in the way of romantic fiction, you guys. No, but like, Sarah, you'd be a class SU president now. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, 2019 Sarah was like, yeah, way too obsessed with the whole thing. Like, I'd like to think that 2022 Sarah gets the whole, you know, boundaries and balance thing. Maybe even so much so that she doesn't want to be involved in SU stuff anymore. But still refers to herself in the third person. Naturally. Refers to herself in the third person naturally. Aw, you watched the Philadelphia story. I did. Single-handedly saved Christmas. Also, you know, 1940 Catherine Hepburn is very much my jam. 
Yeah, I can see that. Like, like you guys, should I read this? See, see, if I were truly a slick SU Freshers Night MC, that tangent wouldn't have happened and Katie would know when her prompt needs to start. Like, no, seriously, Sarah, like I wasn't thinking. No, and seriously, Chloe, like not even a thing. Don't even think about it. Okay, you want to go? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all right. Prologue. May 1917. The train pulled out of Eastbourne just after five. Although it was early in the evening, the sun was already turning a fiery gold, bathing the passengers in warm light until they squinted and fell silent, like insects trapped in amber, war-weary and speechless. Men returning to the front after being patched up in Summerdown Military Hospital gathered in the corridors by the half-open windows, while in one compartment, a young woman sat in the sun's direct line, letting herself become washed in the glow until she seemed as bronze as the light. She wore a simple violet calico dress and hummed a phrase from a Mozart operetta over and over again. But she looked tired. Her body had been through a lot. Her companion opposite stayed in shadow, for a story had been told. A story that needed an answer, for better or worse. But the woman in the light was taking her time. There was no hurry, for the story's first words still echoed between them. It was my fault. Part 1. The Legacy. September 1913. Until the ticket collector arrived, the two women occupying the second compartment of the fifth carriage on the two o'clock train from London Bridge to Brighton had not said a word to each other. Mrs. Michael Stewart, the older of the two by several decades and dressed in black, the excrescence of crepe, I think that means a lot of crepe and tulle, I'm assuming that's what that means, partly hiding the cracks on her gloves, really should have like looked that up beforehand, anyway, back to the book, none of this is in the book, um, had no book or newspaper or pastime to amuse her, but stared straight ahead with the grim face of the chaperone on duty. She seems like such good crack. Nothing stirred her, nothing interested her. Her widow's weeds were not recently acquired, yet she had lost interest in life long before she had qualified for their use. By contrast, the younger of the two, Miss Eva Downey, sat close by the window, so close that her breast nearly grimed the glass. She squirmed on the soft upholstery of the sheets and tweaked at the velveteen curtains. Sometimes she sat back and clasped on the small medallion she wore around her neck. On other occasions, she consulted her Bradshaw's railway guide, her other books being in the valise stored above their heads. Of this behaviour, Mrs. Stewart indicated her disapproval through a series of tuts and sniffs, all of which Eva ignored. She was 17 years of age, with hair the colour of straw that had not seen the sun, wide apart grey-blue eyes and a carriage that was a good half-stone too heavy for the stricter kind of corset. We feel you, Eva. And up until the moment the line turned towards the coast and showed the wide expanse of sea glowing in the severe autumn sun, she had never seen the English coastline, nor had she ever been on a train apart from the tube. Her stepmother, Catherine, had admonished her. "'Twas getting on the tube that night brought it on yourself in the first place. I'm glad Mrs. Michael's keeping an eye on you." Eva, feeling the familiar residual ache in her arm and remembering all too well what she had brought upon herself, had made no reply, merely turning away in disgust. Mrs. Stewart was a friend of Catherine's, or at least they had known each other back in Ireland. In London, Catherine Danny paid few calls. Even after 11 years of marriage, her status was too uncertain for her to risk it. So, 
Of all the women in London she could have called on for the task of escorting Eva to her destination, only Mrs. Stewart was at her disposal, for Mrs. Downey could not, she declared, be expected to carry out the disagreeable duty herself. Why, the injustice of seeing off her stepdaughter to some fancy school when her own dear Grace had to stay at home? Every time the subject was broached, she became so impassioned that she lost her senses and it became necessary to administer sal volatile to revive her. In her stead, Mrs. Stewart had agreed to accompany Eva from the top step of the Downey's three-storey terrace in 35 Wellclose Square, East London, to the station at Eastbourne, where Eva would be handed over, like a package of goods, to Miss Caroline Hedges, headmistress of the Lynx School for Young Ladies. Mrs. Stewart was not a pleasant companion. She smelt of mothballs combined with something malformed and rotting deep within the gut. But regardless, Eva felt only joy. She flourished her ticket at the collector who stamped it with a smile. It was a single. She wasn't going back any time soon, thank God. Eastbourne, eh? He inquired. Well, it's nice to see a lady as happy as you are. What business brings you there? Mrs. Stewart immediately cut in. You're not to answer him. To the conductor, she declared, this girl's family is respectable. She doesn't talk to strange men. He's the ticket collector. Eva said, her voice like a bucket of ice water. <coughs> got, got, got kind of emotional there. <laughs> it's, it's his job to ask people where they're going. And it's my job to make sure that you behave yourself, Mrs. Stewart responded, rather more sharply than seemed merited. The conductor, obviously perturbed, backed away. He was nearly out the door when Eva called after him. Sir, wait, please. I shan't leave your question unanswered. There's a school near Eastbourne called the Lynx. I'm going to attend it for a year. She broke into a broad smile. The Lynx, isn't that the fine school for young ladies? I've heard it's very fancy indeed. You must be quite the lady yourself to be going there, miss. His forehead creased with the beginnings of doubt. She did not look quite right. While she was acceptably dressed, in a simple ivory habit-like dress that looked like a school uniform, she was hatless, her hair hanging limply by her sides in a thick, rather shapeless cut. She was no Lady Lavery, that was for sure. But the conductor had heard tell that the school cost north of £70 a year. One had to be seriously moneyed to put that amount aside. Eva shook her head, laughing. Oh, no, not I. I'm hoi polloi, I'm afraid. No, I was very kindly bequeathed a legacy by Lady Elizabeth Jenkins for this specific purpose. I met her at a... But there, Eva bit her lip and stopped. Yes, that's right. Mrs. Stewart snapped. Don't be telling him of your disgraceful behaviour or he won't be so nice to you anymore. You should have stayed home and married Mr. Cronin like you were told to. I'm sorry, miss, the conductor said, nodding at Eva. I seem to have embarrassed your mother. Silence fell for a few heartbeats, a few clickety-clacks as the wheels passed over the gaps in the rails. When Eva eventually replied, it was with a quiet viciousness that was clearly audible against the rush of wind and the noise of the train on the tracks. She's not my mother, nor is the woman who sent her. My mother died when I was five years old, and there's not a woman alive fit to take her place. And with that, the smile left her face. She opened her railway guide and remained every bit as still and cold for the rest of the journey as the miserable fossilised creature sitting opposite her. A month ago, she never would have dreamed she'd be making this journey. That day, she had been called to enter the parlour and introduced to a stranger, a solicitor called Mr Phelps, who had called especially to see her. The parlour fronted onto the square, which was in a rather shabby part of town, so the curtains were often drawn to conceal the modesty of the neighbourhood. 
Mr. Phelps seemed enveloped in a kind of half-gloaming. Papa had been present, of course. I'd had the rest of the family. When that gentleman with the overlong trousers and florid delivery informed them that in gratitude for her work for the new feminist, Lady Elizabeth Jenkins had bequeathed Miss Eva Downey the sum of £75 for the express purpose of finishing her education. There had been a pause, which Mr. Phelps, who looked too grand for the room, had allowed to lengthen beyond the point of embarrassment before saying pointedly, Any questions? Eva's sister Imelda had embraced her while Catherine stood there with a face like a gate. Since the discovery of what Mrs. Stewart called her disgraceful behaviour two years ago, Eva's relationship with her father's wife had deteriorated from mutual distrust to open warfare. Catherine had done no more than live down to all expectations. Grace's reaction, however, had been somewhat different. At the time, Eva's stepsister merely greeted the news with a shrug and the blood-red smirk that habitually animated her pale, lovely, suspicious face. But a few weeks later, in August, while reading Women's Weekly on the sofa in the parlour, Eva felt two hands suddenly settle on her shoulders. She jumped. Grace, what do you want? Stand up. Eva was too surprised to disobey. Now... I'm going to stand behind you, like this, and I want you to fall backwards so I can catch you. I need you to trust me, just for this moment. No doubt Grace saw Eva's shoulders stiffen because she quickly added, You're leaving now. You've chosen your school and we haven't really had much of a talk, have we? About what will happen when you go. No. Eva clenched her fist to her chest. The world is not a friendly place for people like us. We have to be careful not to let the mask slip. When we're excited, our Irish accents can come out. We're judged for that. Still, Eva kept tight, lifting her chin slightly. You needn't shut me out, Eva. Just this once, let yourself be helped. There was something mesmerising about her voice. Eva let herself lean backwards. Further, trust me. Eva leaned back further and fell, hitting the floor with a thump on the tailbone. She exclaimed with pain, looked up and saw Grace glaring down as if Eva had caused her offence. Let that be your first lesson. Never trust anybody. Eva gaped at her. Grace returned her astonishment with an elegant little moo. All right, so I tricked you. Don't be childish about it. Those society girls aren't going to be any nicer. At least now, you know what to expect. Slowly, Eva rose from the floor. Her lower back was screaming. She was about to tell Grace exactly what she thought of her, but Grace held up a hand. The trouble with you, Eva, is that you're too reckless, and you know what happened the last time. Without waiting for a reply, she exited the room with the same tight elegance with which she had entered it. The memory of Grace's last salvo faded into the imperious hoot of the train as it pulled into Eastbourne Station. Eva wasted no time in gathering her things and left the train without saying goodbye to her chaperone or even looking around to see where she might go. She was glad to be well shot of Mrs. Stewart. Eva Downey? She turned to find herself face to face with an attractive red-headed woman somewhere in her early 40s. She wore a perfume Eva recognised for Grace had the same one, a new variety called April Violets. Caroline Hedges, I trust you had an easy journey? Without waiting for an answer, the woman held out her hand. Her grip on Eva's fingers was soft but firm. The portrait came out from behind with Eva's bag. Miss Hedges made a gesture to him, indicating outside, and said to Eva, follow me. They made their way through the sunlit pavilion and out onto the street. The station entrance curved around a junction, and at the far side, a little clock tower chimed quarter to five. 
not far away, perhaps a mile off at most, Eva could sense the presence of the sea, could smell it in the air. Her anticipation only gathered pace when Miss Hedges stopped beside her red motor car with a canopy and three wheels and indicated to the porter to bring Eva's suitcase separately. Small though it was, it was too big to fit in the space behind the seat. She leaned into the driver's seat and fetched a red checked scarf and motor hat from her glove compartment, beckoning Eva to the passenger seat as she fastened the scarf around her chin. Eva noticed that it smelled of April violets too. Then she dragged the hat down on top of the scarf and dashed around to the rear to crank up the engine while Eva sat watching her, enthralled at the sight of a woman working a car, driving on the road. Oh, that's nothing, Miss Hedges laughed when Eva commented on her driving. We can do anything we want. I do encourage my pupils to bear that in mind. There is more than one way of finishing one's education these days. Did you know that we teach mathematics? We are one of the only finishing schools in the country that do that. Eva made a sound that was meant to convey polite admiration. Well, I'm glad you're sensible anyway. No retinue. You could have nearly fitted that case into the back of this little caress. I thought when I saw that woman on the train with you, Mrs. Stewart, Eva shuddered. She's my stepmother's friend. So many of my girls think I'm going to put up their maids. It frightens me sometimes to see them so ill-equipped for life. Eva wanted to laugh. A maid? Her? It's hard, Miss Hedges continued, shedding over the wind, to reconcile this sort of education with proper feminist principles. We do try to arrange alternatives for our less fortunate girls who might not have the opportunity to marry. Oh, Ava thought. She means me. A decent career. Teaching, perhaps. Never did me any harm. Anyway, you've had the good fortune of enjoying this little trip, Miss Hedges shouted as the wind began to get up, since none of the other girls come in on the train. They all have private transport, so they'll be along later. Whereas I took the train because I'm poor. As they left town, Miss Hedges accelerated along the country lanes. It was a bright evening after rain. Droplets on the windshield shone as the yellowing sun hit them, and trees whispered in the wind as they sped past. Miss Hedges' hair blew out of her hat and scarf, while her attempts to make conversation were largely defeated by the rushing air and the noise of the engine behind them. Eva was too spellbound to speak much anyway. She allowed herself to feel the wind brushing past her cheek with an almost ecstatic pleasure. They reached the school half an hour later. It was up a short, twisting driveway, a rather grand, white, two-story house with a stern portico and a lawn out front that stretched for a good half an acre. Beyond that, a row of trees half-concealed some sports pitches. On the far side, Eva could make out a whitewashed stone building of the same height as the original house, but longer, with its own entrance. This, Miss Hedges explained, contained dormitories and the servants' quarters. Beyond that were stables and outhouse buildings. They'd been converted to classrooms. Equitation was included on the curriculum, but conducted off the premises. I bought the whole thing for a song back in 1907. It was a tumble-down wreck at the time. Some sort of artist's colony. She did not say where she got the money from, and even knew better than to ask. She was already aware of being in a different world. In the six years of its operation, the headmistress continued, the Lynx could boast many distinguished former pupils in spite of its modest size and unpretentious rooms. And here am I, Eva thought, a parvenu Irish girl with barely a spare penny to her name. A man came out onto the gravel driveway. Miss Hedges instructed him to take the car around the back while she and Eva went inside. The hall was narrow and dark with a limestone tiled floor painted green and white, a colour scheme continued into the striped wallpaper. Eva guessed this was Miss Hedges' private quarters. Straight ahead, a small series of steps led down to the kitchen. On Eva's left was a row of coats on hooks. She reached out to touch one, a grey gabardine, 
brushing it ever so slightly with her fingertips. It released a smell of geraniums into the air. Her own coat, heavy on her shoulders, felt malodorous and shapeless in comparison. Miss Downey, Miss Hedges called out. Eva guiltily dropped her hand and went into the kitchen. A supper of thickly sliced bread with cheese and dripping was waiting for her, along with a mug of tea. Opposite, a place was set for Miss Hedges with some cold meats and a small glass of white wine. Elderflower, Miss Hedges said, from our gardens. Would you like to try some? Oh no, ma'am, I don't drink, Eva answered, flustered. Oh, I think just to sip this once would be fine. She extended the glass and Eva took a cautious sip, then recoiled, the sharp taste jangling on her tongue and down her neck like a twisting corkscrew. Miss Hedges took the glass away from her and smiled. Ah yes, perhaps you're not quite ready to taste the sweetness of wine. She finished the glass off herself with surprising speed. So, Eva Danny, she said when it was drained and set firmly back on the table. Why here? The question caught Eva off guard. It was, ah, on a list Lady Elizabeth Jenkins included in her will. She said you had a thorough understanding of the grounding needed for a modern woman. Lady Elizabeth was the one who, Miss Hedges cut her off. Oh yes, I know her, may she rest in peace. She smiled with limited affection. Incorrigible old suffragette. You know her great niece, Sybil Detouche, is here. I didn't, Eva said, surprised, but I met her. The memory was all too sharp. Census Day, Sunday, 2nd of April, 1911. The headiness of that glorious and endless summer stretching from then to mid-October, almost without a break. Just at the end of March, Eva had been out on a shopping trip with Catherine and Grace and had seen a young woman in the centre of Trafalgar Square in a navy corduroy skirt, waving her placard, Convicts, Lunatics, Women. All three have no votes. In her hoarse whisper of invitation in Eva's ear while Catherine was trying to pull them away, history is happening here. Do you want to be part of it or do you want to be a bystander all your life? Eva had persuaded Imelda, in spite of her rattling, lingering cough, to sneak out with her that evening on a clandestine journey to Richmond Park, 11 miles and several changes on the tube away from their home, to take part in a mass suffragette protest to evade the census. They gathered across the road on Wimbledon Common to hear the woman from Trafalgar Square make a speech. Illuminated by lanterns suspended from a tent roof, she looked gaunt in the cheek as if she lived off nothing but her own burning fervour. As Eva cheered with the crowd, stamping her feet and raising her arms to applaud, she felt as if she was on the edge of something new and exciting, something that would lift her out of the life she had known. And then there had been the chance meeting that night with Lady Elizabeth Jenkins, that most singular of aged suffragettes, as Miss Hedges had already noted. Although she hardly knew Eva Downey from a hole in the ground, she had put her claw-like hand on Eva's shoulder and declared her in need of finishing forthwith. There is something missing in you, an absence. It bothers me, she had said. I'll see to it. And then she had grumbled about how she could not get anyone to contribute to her suffragist magazine, not even one little article about skipping the census. She looked disapprovingly over at her great-niece. Yes, that had been Sybil. Once supper was over, the headmistress brought Eva on a tour around the buildings, pointing out the classrooms, common rooms, sewing and music rooms, and concluding at Eva's new dormitory. This contained six beds. As the newest pupil, Eva would have to sleep in the bed closest to the door. Even though the girls had not yet arrived, all their beds had been taken. Miss Hedges waited while Daisy, the maid, brought up Eva's case. Then she handed her a mimograph timetable and bade her good night. For a moment, all was quiet except for creaks in the walls and floorboards. Then, hello? 
A voice rising up the stairs, then a sudden rush of footsteps, the door opening, the corridor light spilling in. The smell of cigarette smoke. The culprit leaning against the door jamb. A tall, handsome girl of about Eva's own age, not in uniform, instead wearing a long, patterned drop-waist dress. No sooner had their eyes met than the girl fished another cigarette out of her purse and bent close with the lighter. The flame caught her profile, then died out. The indoor light could not entirely dull the shade of the girl's hair, a far deeper and more magnificent red than Miss Hedges. Eva recognised her immediately. The smell of fresh smoke filled the room, pleasant for a few seconds before the inevitable staleness that followed. Sybil, for it was she, looked up anxious. You're not going to tell me, are you? I'll jolly well have to open the window or I'll get into ferocious trouble. Eva smiled. You don't remember me. Sybil took another drag and puffed out some smoke. Hold on. Oh gosh, yes, I do. Richmond Park. My great-aunt took a shine to you, didn't she? Left you a bit in her will, I heard. Didn't leave me a bean, but she was generous enough to me when she was alive, God bless her. Besides, I didn't write naughty stories for her paper, and you did. Jolly good show. I wanted to, Eva said shyly. That's nice, Sybil said, sounding somewhat doubtful. What's your name, anyway? Evelyn, was it? I have a memory like a sieve. Eva. Eva Downey. Sybil sat down on her bed, wrinkling her nose in some confusion. Downey, Downey. I'm sorry, who are your people? You wouldn't know them. They came over from Ireland. That is to say, my father did, quite recently, and brought us with him. Eva could feel her cheeks grow warm. Had Grace been right? Was it starting already? Ireland, Sybil said. You've no trace of an accent at all. She could not quite manage to keep her tone free of praise. I was not seven years old when we left Cork for good, so I'd have very little of it left. And I work hard at suppressing the remnants. Sybil must have picked up the defensiveness in Eva's answer because she shrugged and pulled on her cigarette again. I'm being cheeky, aren't I? She said. I only meant to be curious. I like different backgrounds, you know. I get so tired of people harping on about ancestors and titles and all that nonsense. I mean, look at me. My blood is bluer than a field of cornflowers. We've been around since, my goodness, Edward I? Though as far as I can remember, I think our entire lineage was only granted legitimacy because they offed the Duke of York and stuck his head in the pike. When was that, do you remember? Eva had no idea, but Sybil continued. And the worst part of it all is that everyone thinks we're French because I'm unlucky enough to be saddled with the last name de Touche. It never occurs to them that my family go back far enough that everybody had French names. As it happens, I hate the French. They're so arrogant. We were cycling around the Loire Valley and we stopped for a sandwich in the middle of the afternoon and everything was shush. I could see the back of the kitchen, all the ingredients there, some bread, the most beautiful looking goat's cheese. And I said, I'll make it myself for heaven's sake. But it was all, no, no, c'est ferme. I hate the French. She stretched herself out the length of the bed, letting her booted feet dangle over the end. Cigarette ash falling on the linoleum just as footsteps and voices began to echo from the bottom of the stairs. You mustn't mind me, she added. I do go on so. Mama said it gives her quite a headache. Eva let Sybil rattle on as she sat down on her own bed and pushed her suitcase underneath it. A bell clamoured down the corridor as the other girls joined them. They expressed a cursory interest in Eva before returning to their conversations. Another girl in a uniform walked up and down outside, a heavy bell in her hands. They would stand for prayer, then it would be lights out, according to the timetable. Eva undressed carefully. The process of removing dress, corset, petticoat, flannel undershirts, stockings, combinations and finally underwear was tricky enough when done in private and ten times worse in public. It seemed to take forever, the fiddling, hooking, unhooking, secreting away the used linen. 
Finally, she donned a nightdress which fell over her body like a billowing curtain. Usually, Eva undressed in the dark with only Imelda there and she didn't have to worry about being seen, unlike now. When they were all in their nightdresses, the girls all stood by their beds, leaving the door open to listen to the bell ringer read a verse from the Book of Common Prayer. Then the thin curtains were drawn, the light turned out, and they got into bed. Eva rested her head on the thin pillow and looked at the faint light through the windows while the others settled into rhythmic breathing or light snores. It took her some time to follow them into sleep. This is a new adventure, she thought, and I must trust where it leads me. But during the night, she had the old dream, the aftermath of that census day in 1911, the disgraceful behavior. The foul-tasted mottled ink of Lady Elizabeth's new feminist got on her fingers and the headline, A Jolly Night Out Hiding from the Census Man by Miss E.M. Downey turned into rivulets of black blood running down the paper and obscuring everything. Close by, her mother Angela, long dead, hummed lullaby-byes until Eva tried to look at her, come to her arms for safety and then she fell into nothingness, a blackest inky dark. The void roared, first a growl, then a low and indecipherable as a gale force wind between building. Then words, you bitch, you bitch, you bitch, you bitch, beastuck. Everything snapped into white and in the midst of it was Grace, standing in a doorway, lips a precise cranberry red, eyebrows arched with reproachful dismay. She was saying, Mama. Eva woke up in a trash of sweat. Immediately, the unfamiliar walls and windows of the dormitory crowded in on her, the sounds of the girls in slumber. She had to clap her hand to her mouth and bite her palm not to cry out. She brushed her eyes with the back of her hand. They were wet. What had started that up again? It must have been Sybil, she concluded. Sybil now lying on her back several feet away, sending light snores up to the ceiling. Meeting her must have raked her over the coals. She blinked and swallowed and waited for sleep. She would not weaken. She would not let them win. Oh my god, I'm so excited. Can I talk about how I want Sybil to be my best friend what, now, let, Sarah? Let's hold on for a sec, dude. We're already like 40 minutes in. Jesus Christ. Like, maybe if we take a second for a break and we come back and you can talk as much as you like about how much you want to borrow Sybil's lipstick. Yeah, and like, it wouldn't be gross or anything, Sarah. I'd use a brush, like. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, you guys don't want to miss any of these razor-sharp insights, so stay tuned for more Chiclet for Life. We'll be right back. We all know how it is. You're back to college, but you still need your K-Beauty haul delivered during the day. You're trying to go zero waste, but your carbon neutral, no plastic toilet paper delivery can't stay out in the rain. It'll dissolve. Well, Deliverology is here to help. Not only are we still offering our food and stealth home delivery services thrown directly into your bedroom window, we now also have a delivery hub behind the canteen. Redirect all your deliveries to us today and get a free Deliverology Stanley knife to open all those sweet, sweet packages with. Deliverology is not liable for any injuries sustained while opening packages or otherwise using our free gift. Deliver Olivy, enabling your shopping addiction one delivery at a time. Oh my actual god, I'm like so properly related uh, right now. Like you are not supposed to be buying more clothes, man. Yeah, think of the whales, Chloe. And like, plus, I'm not sure you'd be that down for wearing a new crop top that smells like canteen soup. Sarah. 
No, but like the smell wouldn't get through the plastic, though, wouldn't it? Like, you are the actual reason the world is on fire. You do realise this. <laughs> but yes, yes. Let's go back to a simpler time. A time of mustard gas and ineffective gas masks. A time when psychiatry wasn't a thing yet and no one in Ireland knew Korea from a hole in the ground. <gasps> so you are the actual worst now. It really is, yeah, a fascinating time. And like, and I know very little about it, you know, other than it sort of kickstarted the 20th century as we kind of know it. Well, it being the First World War. There she is. <laughs> but no, like, you're right. Like, the suffragette movement was in full swing before the war. But like, yeah, with the number of male casualties and everything, the need for women in the workforce, yeah, like, understandably really lit a fire under the whole situation. I mean, like, it's over 100 years later and we still have women being killed in broad daylight for being women, but... Okay, like, we weren't going to let that get in the way today, man. Yeah, I know. All right. And I know that the fact that the level of uproar over Ashton Burnfee being murdered in broad daylight last week that happened here in Ireland she was like 23 year old teacher like the level of uproar is justified and appropriate but why wasn't it present when Arantzitzeg Serendorj was killed walking home or when Jenny Poole was stabbed in Finglas or when Zinette Bashabska was killed on Christmas Eve for fuck's sake like the fact that this level of outrage comes up for a 23 year old primary school teacher that plays traditional Irish music is problematic in itself like oh my god Katie how is this helpful like something like might be done now like it doesn't matter who is cause of right uh, like I don't know like the whole like in quotes well-respected family stuff in the newspaper articles that was like that was kind of tough to read like if the family wasn't as well-respected like it wouldn't be as big a deal no like I know but like Chloe is right like the fact is people are listening now for whatever reason like People are listening to the fact that unprovoked violence within the community needs to be rooted out and that blaming victims of violence for being in the wrong place at the wrong time is unhelpful, particularly when that place is on a like popular running route in like broad daylight. Like, I mean, we could we could talk about this all day um, for, for anyone who's interested in, you know, helping, you know, w- women and, and, and anybody vulnerable in the community um, defend themselves against violence, please do uh, look up, I don't know, resources in your local area that you can donate to as opposed to posting comments on, on social media and giving out on your podcast that you run to talk about books. What? Whoa. Okay, yeah, that was that was a little bit uncalled for. A little. Um, I'm, ju- I'm just saying, you know, we could just get our blue stockings out on our own time and do the suffragette movement proud you know yeah i guess like i yeah yeah i I get i get what you're saying that was a dick way to say it though sarah it was it was a dick way to say it i'm sorry okay all right okay so like right i didn't know what the whole blue stocking thing was yeah and like i looked it up on wikipedia and all and um like, them blue stocking beards, they all sound like they were just shit poshos, like, pretend to be sound. You know, like, all the vegan baristas, what Katie wants to get into these like, days. Stop saying that Dave could hear you, man. Like, I do not want to get into uh, anyone. Excuse you. You are said that you are okay in theory with a bloke having a man born, Katie. You can't just take that back. Girls, 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 girls. Couple things. Okay, couple things. One, Katie. Ew. No, 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 no,
Ooh. Though, Chloe, I will remind you of your fondness for Jungkook Yopa's curly man bun this time last year. Two. Yes, going back for informational purposes. Yeah, last week, a 23-year-old primary school teacher was beaten to death at four in the afternoon when she was out for a run here in Ireland. Um, her name was, yeah, Ashling Murphy. And as a country, we're devastated and to be honest, pretty worn out by the senseless violence occurring to people, particularly women, just living their lives. But three, as Katie said, there were women that are not native Irish or that were from less privileged backgrounds that are not coming up in the conversation as loudly as we'd have thought, you know, would be appropriate. And um, yeah, they didn't have this outrage attached to their own grisly murders one not three weeks ago. Yeah. Um, but most of all, four. Our Eva, as you heard in the extract, is a suffragette, for better or worse. And I say we take up that mantle as well as our pre-existing feminist chiclet for life and BTS army titles. Her, these business cards are going to be an actual nightmare to print. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Chloe, you looked into the whole blue stocking thing. Like, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Christopher. Um, my main man, Christy. Oh, no, Mr. If my main man, Christy, says, don't you try to come between us right now? <laughs> but, yeah, no, he says it to Ava that, like, she's gone become a right blue stocking with all our feminism and, like, knowledge and all. So, yeah, I looked it up. I thought that maybe, like, the suffragettes, like, wore a uniform and I couldn't remember if the mom in Mary Poppins had, like, blue stockings on or not. Excellent Mary Poppins reference. Well, thank you, Kleena. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like I looked it up on Wikipedia and all and like, yeah, I get it. The Blue Stocking Society was like for women to get together and talk about books and all when they were supposed to be like, I don't know, some pictures of beards onto like pointless bits of material or whatever. Okay, weirdest description of needlepoint ever, but let's continue. I don't know, saying it's pointless is kind of poetic. Exactly, Saoirse. Thank you for, like, appreciating my genius. <laughs> there is absolutely no way you said pointless on purpose. Shut up, Katie, no one asked you. But, like, but yeah, yes, 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 yes. This blue stocking thing, yeah, which was named the Blue Stocking Society because a man used to show up in blue socks and the ladies didn't mind but like these posh old ladies like getting together to talk about books like I, like I guess it just sort of smacks of like posh folks doing arts degrees because their folks aren't all up their arse all sixth year in school being all like oh what job are you going to get out of that Chloe you know your auntie Jean is looking for help down the salon why don't you just be a trainee hairdresser in there <laughs> so like slightly triggering Chloe what makes you say that? <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but like it was super exciting though, like seeing Eva go to like the suffragette speeches, like step up when Lady Elizabeth needed someone to write for the new feminist, all that stuff. It's it's kind of weird to think though that if Eva hadn't done that, like if she hadn't gone to the speeches, if she hadn't met Lady Elizabeth, then she never would have been given the money to go to school and like she wouldn't have met like Sybil again or she wouldn't have met Mr. Shandlin. What do you mean? Like, she would have been spared so much, like, pain, I guess. She would have just been made marry that guy Cronin, though. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're, we're kind of, we're getting a little bit muddled here, I think. Yeah, I think it's because we already know the characters from Lucia's War, so it kind of feels like we're continuing the last conversation from, like, Series 3 instead of, like, starting this one fresh. Yeah, actually, that's that's an interesting point. So, so yeah, let's start it. So, like, we've got Eva being sent to finishing school with money left to her by a crazy old suffragette. It is bananas, 
bananas that the most forward-thinking school available to girls at the time was still a fucking finishing school like domestic economy posture deportment needlework i mean that shit's still insulting regardless of whether or not you teach languages and maths you hate maths it's the principle chloe really want to make a joke about first principles right now you would be the only one who got it that is very true (laughs) (laughs) but like what's that line that sybil had like yeah about like what the school does like spinsters manufacturing wives she is my actual hero i i genuinely cannot like it was super gross though like all the posh girls being like here why do we have to learn this yeah it's just a little close to oh my god is this going to be in the exam like like now a lot of people feel like they're paying for a qualification and teachers are there to facilitate that and then people seemed to be paying to become eligible marriage partners and the teachers were I don't know expected to be facilitating that as opposed to an education but you'd have to wonder like all that classist stuff deportment education Education, etiquette, like, if you don't know how to ride a horse, how are you going to marry into the horsey set? And, like, if that's the option available to you as a woman to help your family, surely you're going to feel a ton of pressure to do what it takes, you know? Eva didn't. I mean, would you with her mother? Oh my god, please. No, no, it's a, it's a fair point. No, but like, it's not the point I was making, though, is the thing. No, but still, like, my ma and Katrin, they're not a million miles apart. No, but dude, like, I, I'm so sorry. Like, like no, no, it's, it's, it is good for me to talk about it. And like, Clee, like, maybe, like, tell me if this isn't okay or whatever, but like, because the thing is, I know there's been criticism for Catherine's character, like, elsewhere. Um, folks saying that, like, she's... Too evil. It's, it's an evil stepmother trope, and it's you're kind of like, okay, fine, whatever. We've got a Cinderella situation here. Great, but like, from your perspective, Clee, like that kind of mother figure exists, dude. Like, no, no, it's, it's totally fine. Like, I, like, and I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's like my mom didn't like beat me up or anything, you know. But like, people are mean to kids. You know, people people are mean to their kids. You know, you're you're with them all day, and even though it's your job to look after them, you lose the head. And and the thing is, that happens to uh, mentally healthy people. If you've got issues with your own mental health, like things, there's a risk that things go too far. Like, Clina, seriously, like, how are you this okay? Oh, like, Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, my God. Like, Clina, I am so, like, why did I? I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, this is fine. This is fine. Like, uh, therapy is good. Support groups are good. D- the 12 steps are weirdly helpful, even when you're not an addict yourself, but, like, grew up around it, you know, or with dysfunction. Like, there is, there actually is loads of support out there if you're if you're willing to go and look for it. Yeah, but, Clay, I mean, I'm with Katie on this. You genuinely don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. No, 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 because, like, the thing is, I was thinking about this anyway, um, coming into the show today, like, because, like, I know the whole, in quotes, like, evil stepmother thing is a tough one. And, like, with, with Grace... Catherine's natural daughter she's like pretty much a total asshole the whole time too like I was I was thinking you know reading it like here are these just shallow choices for for these characters are they just devices for Eva to to fight against and like and like I don't think so like the book is set in it's during the first world war as we know and like I know that my granddad Devery 
his mother died and his father got remarried when they were all young. Like he had loads of brothers and sisters. And like when his father got remarried, the story is that the, the new wife put all the kids from the previous marriage out of the house and other family members and neighbours took them in so that they wouldn't go to like orphanages. And I think there might have still been workhouses back then. But like... But like, what about the guards? Like, that's illegal. No, this is the thing. I started reading about it then. Like, the, the back then, the guards would have just put them in an orphanage or in an industrial school. Like, I looked it up and the 1908 Children's Act was the act of law protecting children until it was changed in the 90s when there was, yeah, media coverage on, like, abuse in schools and in the church. And, like, the thing is in the constitution for the free state and, and now the republic like there 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 was originally a line that mentions like the inalienable and imprescriptible rights of parents so like essentially Catherine could do what she liked with Eva and her sister once she married their dad just in fairness just like her folks probably did with her was well, so everybody was just beating up their kids and marrying them off to the force paid out what wanted them back then that's just the way it was for absolutely well, everybody like it's not obviously it's not that cut and dried and I don't know but like thinking about it like genuinely thinking about it like Catherine was a maid yeah like when would she have been sent out to work like her parents would have probably been like her parents maybe had her in the 1890s, 1870s. Her parents would have probably been the first generation after the famine in Ireland, you know. So like that would colour their perception on, you know, doing what it takes to put food on the table, right? Jesus Christ, you really did think about this. Yeah, I did. Like looking into it, yeah, a maid at the time would have started working at like 11 or 12, maybe younger, like it changed in 1892, I saw to like 14 was the minimum age for for taking on house help. But going by Catherine's age in the book, she would have been a little too old for kind of hitting that. So she yeah, probably would have been working since she was like 10. So by marrying Eva's father, when she was like, what, in her 20s or her 30s or whatever, she would have made life far more secure for herself and her daughter. And then to see Eva talking about how she doesn't want to marry the first independent bachelor she comes across. That is, you know, if I was Catherine dealing with the, what she was probably coming from, I'd probably see Eva's behaviour as like a total slap in the face or like, Eva is looking down her nose at the choices Catherine had to make to get to where she is, to get to a place of relative financial safety. What, Sal, Catherine, like, just married Eva's dad for the money, like, she doesn't care about him at all, like... Well, like, I'd imagine Catherine's prerequisites for caring about someone is them having a roof, disposable income and a level of respectability that she doesn't have. You know, like, you know, how Tina Fey's husband probably just married her so that he could hang out with her, Maya Rudolph, Kirsten Wig, and Amy Porter. Like, I legitimately think about what it'd be like to be in that friend group like twice a week. Like, I would marry Tina Fey for that. I hear, Sertia, we'd both marry Tina Fey for a lot of reasons. True, true, true. Yes. You see right through me, Kleena. Always. <laughs> but yeah, so like, no, I do think it's perfectly believable that Catherine would hate Eva as much as she does, particularly since they don't like have the same set of values and that Grace would be as caught up in it as she is. Like, it would be cool to know more about them and why they are the way they are. Like, particularly Grace, to be honest. Yeah, actually, same. Well, she was a bitch, Saoirse. All that wife fed our business. Well, we were going to get to that, Clo Clo. Like, the war hasn't even started yet. Okay. 
But like when we get to the war, I want to talk about Sybil on a motorbike. Consider it done, my friend. You two are actually seven years old. Your point being? Exactly, K.E. Up top. In Galway, man. But Sarah, you were saying. I was, wasn't I? Um. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, Grace is a pretty girl because she has to be. So, like, she can work in a shop and she can make about £16 a year or she can marry a middle-class bank clerk and get access to his salary of £100 a year. Someone higher ranking in the bank could make £1,000 a year and any doctors doing well for themselves could become multi-millionaires in today's money. Like, it just makes sense that being ambitious back then meant marrying incredibly well. Yeah, but, like, like it just, like... Like, that made sense, yeah, when it was Jane Austen we was talking about. But, like, this is a hundred proper years after that. Like, it's still like that all them years later. It's still like that now, man. Being a trophy wife is still a viable career choice. And the gender pay gap just supports the whole fucking thing. Okay, ten points for getting the pay gap in. I genuinely didn't know if I was going to be able to make it this episode. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, but no, like, I do do get what you're saying, sir. It's like... Yeah, and it'd be cool to learn more about Grace because, like, like she makes some wild decisions in the book. Like, like especially later on, it'd be cool to know, like, why. Right? And, like, I think that's what a lot of people look for when, when they talk about nuance in characters. Like, that's there for Eva in spades because we're in her head, but her way of being is totally contradictory to Catherine and Grace's values. And that's kind of because she was brought up in the middle class and they were working class. <gasps> oh my God, like me and Katie. Oh shit, that makes me Grace in this situation. <laughs> uh, yeah, the middle class are still the enemy, asshole. Uh, the wealthy are the enemy, Chloe. Uh, it's the same thing, Uh, No, it's not. Does your dad have a BMW? Does your dad have a BMW (laughs) KE? Like, yeah. I knew it! (laughs) 18 one reg. Like, we didn't buy it new. Like, it barely counts, man. Oh, well, we are just going to have to see what the court of public opinion has to say about this. No, Chloe, like, like, don't tweet about it. No, Chloe, don't tweet about this. Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. But it is, it is interesting that you mentioned the court of public opinion, Chloe. Your segue game is off the charts today, Sarah. I'd like to think after two years of this, I'd be at least decent at making connections. Yeah, no matter how specious. I will take what I can get, my friend. <laughs> but yes, public opinion. Because um, in talking about Grace and Catherine, we need to talk about yeah them and the war breaking out. Which- don't we need to talk about Mr. Shandlin properly, though, before we talk about the war? Yeah, yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah, because yeah, then there's all the feathery business. Yes, Katie, go. Take us down this path of knowledge. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, like, was the whole thing with Mr. Shandlin, like, just a little bit red flaggy for you guys? Yes. Um, yeah, like, not, for, not for the time, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's hurt teacher mine what you've never had a crush on a teacher okay you clearly did not go to my school search a dude oh my god that bad like, you have no idea but like but no like i get it like he appreciates that she's interested in learning like way more than any of the other girls that like yeah are just stupid bored little rich kids wanting to learn how to catch a husband which we've already covered but, but like i'd have thought that she'd be all over his like bitchy reply when that weapon ronda lewis wanted to know why they were studying russian classics in an english literature class oh yeah here uh 
Um, should you find yourself, Miss Lewis, sometime from now in a large, well-appointed drawing room wearing whatever elaborate gaudy outfit best fits your purpose and a landed Russian count crosses the floor captivated by the sight of you and you strike up a conversation, then in the train of that conversation you are asked, what do you think of our great master Tolstoy? Savage. But, like, I mean, obviously that was fire. And now that I'm thinking about it, like, I distinctly remember seeing the phrase Mr. Shanlin's a bit of a ride more than once when you sent me use our Kindle notes, Katie Morphy. But, like, how many times did I have a red flag much? Like, for you? Like, not that much. <laughs> but no, like, like it's, yeah, it's weird that, like, yeah, he was our teacher and had the whole, like, like I like you, but, like, I'm not loud like you. Also, I weirdly smell of cigarette smoke and my fingers are probably stained and I carry around a little black letter journal because I think it makes me look interesting. Like, Katie, actually, now that I'm saying this, why aren't you bet into this bloke? He is just your type. Yeah, I was just about to say. Plus, you know, he had the whole conscientious objector thing going on. Like, this is a pointed and personal attack and I not have to listen to it plus when Eva had to leave school and he just turns up so he can take her out and like gaslight her when they're on date dude for like the last time I'm pretty sure you don't know what that word means uh what else would you call him being all surly and weird when he like asked her out for tea in the first place I'd call it him being dickish and sending mixed signals he didn't say that actual events didn't happen that's what gaslighting is man engineering somebody's experience so they doubt their own reality people being confusing pricks is shit but it doesn't erode your sense of mental security in your own brain Jesus, Sarah. Yeah, sorry. Came in too hot there. Uh, Derek's got it as his new buzzword for any behaviour that pisses him off. And yeah, I'm kind of sick of it, man. Like, Sarah, like, you need to move out of there. Like, I mean, your brother's a prick. Like, this is not going to change. Yeah, you know, I've actually been thinking of selling off one of my diamond tiaras for the security deposit on a place, actually. Yeah, okay, I see your points. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, my main man, Christy, yeah, he's not my type, but, you know, Eva's just mad about him and like of course he doesn't want to fight in the war because his brother got killed in the army like why did Grace have to get so weird and like caught up in it and all it was it was really fucking annoying but like I feel like this is another instance of like Grace being this really interesting character that I'd love to know more about from like her point of view like the way that she gets caught up in the war effort it's a little bit like evangelical religiousness or someone who becomes like like kind of any addictive like virtuous behaviour like like being crazily into healthy eating or working out or like yeah it's any of those things like she genuinely thinks that the war is like a battle between good and evil and people that refuse to fight for good are like the lowest of the low so it's like weirdly like I thought anyway that she kind of thought that she's doing Eva this important service by like pretty much blackmailing her to turn her back on Christopher when he refuses to go to war yeah yeah the whole white feathers for cowardice thing is like so gross and toxic too like the whole thing is just so gross but but in fairness even Grace finds it gross like she doesn't have the stomach for the cruelty that like she's kind of been taught she's, she's still quite young in it and then when she yeah comes face to face with what she's done when she's being cruel she kind of it knocks her a bit right like yeah I really liked that but I mean it was absolutely horrible yeah and like by the time we got to the war and the white feather business I kind of had Eva and Christopher off living in a seaside town teaching in a joint classrooms and making their own cheese in my head you know but like like I get the book had to continue for another couple hundred pages but like still I feel really bad that that was taken away from me oh you know alas the white feather has to be given and the war has to go on does it not Sarah like like the war stuff though like that was that was rough man 
I don't know. I thought we I thought it was harder to read in Lucia's War. I feel like we spent more time at war with Lucia. Like Eva was at war, but everything was kind of such a blur because she was already so traumatized. Yeah, exactly. That does make sense. She's in this depression after she's been yeah, made send Christopher off, like likely to his death, and she doesn't hear from him. She goes with Sybil to help the war effort as a nurse and she has to sew men back together or see them blown apart. Yeah, and I was thinking about this. Like like there had never been shells used in a war before World War One. Like I looked into it and it looks like cannons were used right up until the eighteen fifties. And World War One was also like definitely the first time tanks, flamethrowers, chemical warfare fair anything like that was used and I mean there was no Tarantino back then to slowly desensitize people to what a mangled corpse looks like like there's no way anyone would have been ready for the reality of what that war was like so it kind of like makes a ton of sense to me that it passes Eva by in a flash like how much horror can your mind hold at any one time and like like it was kind of horrifying enough like I didn't need to read more about it man I don't know all that business of the gas blinding people and the shell shock and all, like, that's interesting. Like, it's horrible, but it's interesting. It'd be cool to see more of it. So, like, read all quiet on the Western Front, man. Oh, that's about German forces, Katie. God! Uh, World War One Germans are people too, Chloe. And a hashtag is born. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the state of everyone's mental health at the end of the book kind of tells us everything we need to know, right? That, that was grim. That was really, really grim. That whole Natalie Portman in Black Swan thing pulling the skin off around his nails. Yeah, that's the bit that everybody remembers. That bit on the knife. It, like, it's too real. Like, that line between what could happen and what does. And, like, it does make sense that, yeah, he'd be Natalie Portman in Black Swan messed up. Kind of an understatement. Well, like, like I know, obviously, shell shock was a thing, but, like... Like, Christopher telling us, like, what it was like to have somebody standing there talking to you one minute and then completely gone the next. Like, that's, like, that's got to mess with you. Like, it's really fucked to think about how you could genuinely not exist in a second and, like, to not even have any evidence that you were standing where you were standing a second ago. Like, that's got to mess with your reality. Yeah, and it was really sad to see him doubt his reality like that. Like, that whole idea of him talking to his doctors and feeling like he's, like, fooling them into thinking he's making progress. Like, I mean, it's not like he wasn't a nervous guy to begin with. Like, did you guys think there was a chance his mom had a touch of, like... OCD or like germ phobia or whatever. Oh, like where she had the paper so she wouldn't touch the cake? Yeah, like it might have just been her being all polite. Like you don't touch cake that you're going to be handing someone, but like, I don't know. Yeah, like it's kind of interesting that even just being in that place in the book would make us doubt like everybody's well-being. Like like I thought even Christopher finally getting to have it out over the white feather incident and the whole going to war thing was like way more painful than it had to be. Like just like they were hurting each other, you know, and Christopher not understanding what Eva had to do just because, you know, she had to, as as a woman at that time, that was all like really hard to read. But like, is it just because I was so caught up in how painful it felt to be in the asylum with them at all? Yeah, yeah. Like, I think it can all be a bit participatory if you've got like leanings in that direction to begin with you know and you kind of you feel this type of writing a bit more than other folks like like I know say for example I read Catch 22 in school and other people thought it was like really funny and I had to stop reading it because it felt like the book was like actually shouting in my head like it was just it was just a little bit close to how my own thoughts do be shouting like as horrible as that is, like that's that's pretty cool. Like, I, like I've never really thought 
about books or like anything artistic really like being a relational thing like that your experience would affect how you enjoy something and like just because something's good doesn't mean you'll enjoy it and like does that mean that there is no good there's only things that kind of complement the way your mind is set up Bear watch you steal a terrible movie Chloe you take it back Katie Morphe CGI fire was a bad call, but still. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm unconscious of time, and we still have Macron and Civil to get to. Yeah, like Macron, Catherine Evil step with your vibes. But like, do you not think he was more being like, "Ah, here, you're well enough to give me lip. You're well enough to go out there and shoot some Germans." Yeah, that was my thinking on it. Like, is Eva a bit over dramatic with her whole "you evil man, you woman hater"? Yeah, yeah. For me, that stuff is much more about Eva than about Macron or what he did. Like, I don't think he thinks enough about anything or anyone other than himself to hate anyone like it's that same Rhonda Lewis classism thing from when Eva's in school like people that aren't from England are barely people and people that aren't of equal or higher social standing are even worse like you can't treat someone with respect if you don't see them as human it's pretty mad that like Rhonda and Sybil are pretty much the same in terms of social graces and stuff Sybil is just like a tiny bit kinder and that makes her crazily more personable how dare you how dare you katie morphy speak of my sibyl like that making sure she lets all the shots through and netball practice getting her brother to buy material for eva's dress even though his mates will laugh at him laugh him out of regiment and then like telling him not to be such a little bitch in the letters like she is my actual hero you hate posh people remember uh, your dad drives the bmw remember oh, God. <laughs> plus like she 100 there for eva when she needs it yeah that was really tough like we don't need to go into it too much because spoilers but like yeah Eva goes to Sybil when she's in a lot of trouble and she has no one else and Sybil like doesn't have to help her yeah like she really doesn't and it's like so so cool that she does like but the the thing is like in fairness Eva is so great about Sybil and Roma oh man Sybil and Roma the couple to end all couples I can't yeah even the fact that Sybil has the balls to be who she is like be married to a count and still decides she wants to hang out with sexy lady motorcyclists in like 1915 well it's not exactly like she has a choice like it really does seem like she genuinely can't stay away from Roma at all like Roma and the motorbike and Sybil in the sidecar should not be sexy like, I shouldn't have to say that. That should just go without saying, but, like... But it was, Well, <laughs> 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 what was really cool, though, was Sybil being all, like, I don't even want to think about what this means. I don't want to think about how I feel or anything like that. Women aren't allowed to like women, and that's that. I just want to be around her, and that's as far as I can go. It's in my mind. Like, it's, it's pretty great of... Eva to be so clear with Sybil that like she shouldn't avoid what she has with Roma like with everyone getting blown to bits anyway like what's the point oh, it's very romantic isn't it and like as hard and tragic as Eva's story is like I was kind of more or definitely just as interested in Sybil and Roma's like in spite of everything and all these men and women beating the shit out of each other Sybil and Roma were able to fall in love and like be with each other not in the Bulgarian translation. <gasps> oh my god, that's right! Where we tell you the translated edition in Bulgaria doesn't have like Sybil and Rama like doing the business because like 
like people can't be as gay as they can be here in Bulgaria. It's just so sad. Like I know there was an attack on an LGBTQ centre in Sofia in November of last year. Like and like there's survey data stating that like just like a really low percentage, like thirty percent or so, of people think that homosexuality is acceptable. Like that's seventy percent of people think it's an unacceptable state of being. It's just so sad. Yeah, like I just. I just don't understand why we have to keep defending like like a kind point of view. Like it's just it's just so tiring and like pointless. Yeah, you know, which which, you know, I guess is why Sybil and Roma being the real success story here is is what makes it so rewarding, you know? You guys, you know, we are so over time it is not even funny. Is there anything else we want to get in here? Um mm. Search? Well, like, I guess, you know the way we read Lucia's War first and it was actually really cool because we knew Lucia and lovely smelling Robin before they even appeared in White Feathers. So it was like, okay, we don't really need to think too much about your characters. You live in a different book. Yeah. Well, like, and I know I've said it already, but like, I really feel like Grace could do with that treatment. Like, we see her in snatches during the war and there's just been so much change in her due to stuff that we weren't there for. I, I just... I don't really know what to do with that in my head. Yeah, yeah. I felt like that about Christopher's mate, Gabriel. Yeah, like he had a ton of baggage and I didn't quite get what his deal was. Like I have theories and, you know, I could probably populate a couple of subreddits on it. But like, yeah, I I thought there was like a ton of context for him that like... I kind of need to work out. Yeah, same. Like, he was a super interesting character, but we only saw him through the lens of being Christopher's friend that was mad about him but hated Eva, and that was kind of it. There's so much more to that story. Girls, here, I'm sorry, but I just don't understand why we're not still talking about Sybil being an actual hero. Like, she is my actual role model, and I need her in my life. How do I make her my best friend? Like, seriously, I know she's not real, but, like, neither am I. Well, I mean, the biggest question is, is this going to take time out of your critical Korean study time? I cannot believe, I cannot believe that you would turn your back on Jungkook Kyopa for an upper-class fictional floozy from World War One. You should be ashamed of yourself right now, Chloe Cullen. Katie Morphy, how dare you? No, but yes, yes. (laughs) People listening, if you want to have a read of some sweeping World War I romance that doesn't look away from how grim a war like that can be, White Feathers and Lucia's War are perfectly matched for this cold, bright January we're working with. How's that for a soundbite, Chloe? Like, I can't. I just can't. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, with that gang, we are more than halfway through our People What We Love Load series. (gasps) Oh my God, do we get to talk about the Thing. I think we have oh to. Oh man, this is cool. I'm so excited. So, 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 you guys might be aware our queen and OG inspiration for this very show, Marion Keys, has a new book coming out in February, and we got an advanced copy. <laughs> so, our next episode will be on the sequel to Rachel's Holiday again, Rachel, and we genuinely cannot contain ourselves but we will <laughs> exactly for we are professionals are we not chloe why it's not me sorry i thought that it was quiet enough katie morphe you should be ashamed of yourself <laughs> <It's ridiculous. laughs>
<laughs> we have to shut this down before it gets any weirder. Um, if you could, please, please, please like and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, reviews as well really do help. Um, so if you could leave one, oh, we would just love you forever. Um, you can find us on Instagram at at LifeChicklet4, on Twitter at at chicklet 4 life one and on TikTok. TikTok, TikTok, my goodness. And on TikTok at, at Chicklet for Life. We will see you guys as soon as we can get through this beauty of a book. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay hydrated, mask up where appropriate and take your echinacea. That cold going around out there, it's it's still pretty manky. Okay, so are we going to get together and watch this episode or what? Look, I'm sitting <laughs> up to meet room right now, man. Oh my God, you guys. <laughs> so this week on Didoy, well... You know, what can I even say about this? See, a lot of people don't know the joy of, like, gently kneading your doughy partner's delicious stomach, then leaving them beside a radiator until they've, you know, like, doubled in size. Eyebrows, eyebrows. So when you say, like, doubled in size, you mean... That they have a raging erection, yeah. And then, and then you, like, what, you get in the oven. Don't be ridiculous. Ridiculous, Denise. That would be absurd. Like, there'd be no room to add the egg wash. And, like, the most disturbing part about this is that this show started out as a discussion on when we think the lights beside the canteen will be fixed. But, uh, yeah, you... You gotta tune in, I guess. Didoy Thursdays. <laughs>